Between September of 2003 and July of 2004, Yu Yang Chu killed at least 20 people in Seoul, making him the deadliest serial killer of South Korea. For 10 months, his murder spree shocked South Korean police. But it wasn't the investigators who brought this serial killer down, but workers from the massage parlor where he found his victims. This is the story of the raincoat killer. Why does that sound like a wedding march? Okay, listen, just imagine that there is the intro. You know, if you follow me on TikTok, which is a very niche statement to make, exactly what theme song I would like after that intro. I would need a lot more followers to achieve that goal, but it is... What's it called? But it is The Twisted Games by Night Panda. It is so epic. Guys, we need to make it happen. We need to make it happen. They're not like Beyonce big, right? You kind of still probably need like, I don't know, millions of people in order to convince Night Panda to give you the rights to even the tiniest bit of that song. And then I imagine him, you know, like animation playing as that song is playing in the intro. After I tell you, this is the story of... You get it. You get how production works, right? Oh god, so exhausting living in your brain. Anyways, we are here to talk about the true events behind the Netflix documentary called The Raincoat Killer. Now, I have a question for you, okay? What is your least favorite way to consume true crime content? Because mine, it will come as a surprise to many people, was always, had always been and always will be true crime documentaries. I just find that they always have an agenda, and they always leave out a huge chunk of important information that leads you, and that you need, that is crucial for you to make some sort of conclusions, to make, like, a knowledgeable decision about why this person actually committed these crimes. And this documentary, as much as I enjoyed it, as much as I think that you should definitely watch it, you know, compared to, like, so many other documentaries out there, it is really well made. It made my skin crawl so many times because it really does put you in the location. Like, you really do think, like, you are going through this yourself as a police investigator. So that is something that it does really well. As much as it does all of that well, it kind of excludes, like, a huge chunk of this man's life that helps you understand how he got there and why. If you have recognized yourself in that intro and you're the person who doesn't necessarily like true crime documentaries, you like a structured story, the way that people on YouTube who cover true crime tell it to you, well, you are in the right place. Consider liking and subscribing, because I'm trying to get somewhere, and I'm so close to having the community tab open, meaning that I can actually run things by you. So, if I, in the future, do the events based on the true story... What do you call it? What do you call it, Maya? True events behind, that is it. I've only done it once, okay? That's why it doesn't really ring a bell. And I like structure, like putting everything into playlists. So I've only done it with Compliance, which is this movie on Amazon Prime. I would definitely recommend watching it. And I would definitely recommend watching my videos because I go into psychology behind it. It is wild. That thing was a true shocker. This one, 
as well is but what i'm trying to say the community tab is going to open and then i can tell you hey guys i'm watching this i'm gonna cover it in more detail watch it with me you know so that you come here you're prepared you know exactly what i missed out and i can loop you right into it but now without further ado maya is the name oh my god i didn't say that in a while true events behind the raincoat killer <laughs> Say it again. Do it again. Roll, take two. True events behind the raincoat killer is the game. It is the topic of the day. I'm taking a mini true events break because I've done a deep dive, as you guys know, about the Lost Girls of Panama. So the next couple of episodes, well, two to be precise, are going to be based off of Netflix documentaries and then just me going into a deeper dives into those. And then I shall be back with one big case. And after that, I want to cover another mystery. And then yet again, I need your help to decide what I should cover. As you guys know by now, I usually like covering something where a decision or a verdict has been made, but people still consider it mysterious, whether it is because of potential cover-up or whether it is because it isn't as black and white. So if anything pops to mind, drop that into the comments. And now let us go to Seoul. That is how you pronounce that city's name, as I have googled it to make sure, and to South Korea and speak about the raincoat killer. Just a brief trigger warning before we dive into the meat of this story. This is a story of a serial killer, which means we are going to be talking about topics such as dismemberment, the less dead, marginalized communities. It is important to talk about these topics, but just so you know, it gets real dark real soon. So if this is something that you don't want to listen to, there's plenty of other videos out there that aren't revolving around serial killers. This is so triggering. Should I change this background? Let me change it real quick and then I'll be back. Isn't that more peaceful? Just a nice scenic view, a beautiful picture of Seoul. And this is where our story starts, in the early 2000s, when we learned that serial killers are still rare in South Korea and there were only a few of them so far. The documentary begins with the murder of an elderly woman who was living in a rich neighborhood. At the time, and for most of the documentary, until they actually figured out that they might be dealing with a serial killer, the police precincts didn't really communicate with one another. During that first crime scene investigation that they came upon, they realized that the murder has been brutal, which meant a lot of blood has been left on the scene, and that further meant a lot of footprints. The next two crime scenes will lead them to two other footprints, but then this killer is going to change his MO, his modus operandi, the way he killed his victims, and this will in turn make him a lot harder to track down. At least 20 victims will end up dying before he will appear on TV in that yellow raincoat that will eventually lead to him being monikered the raincoat killer. 
But who is this man and what does the documentary not tell us? Let us talk about this man's childhood. Anything that I could really dig up on the internet, because this is the part that the documentary doesn't mention. And in my opinion, it is crucial to understanding who this man is, where he came from, and potential motivations for his crimes. Now, bear in mind beyond the raincoat pictures, which also are a few, and he's wearing a mask, covering most of his face, we don't really know how this man looks like. We only have two pictures of young you. So, there are only two pictures from his high school, I would say, high school years, possibly, like, early student years, and that also speaks to his identity, rather, the issues that he has surrounding it. Just wanted you to note that before we dive in, just so you don't think, like, I'm super stingy with the pictures that I'm sharing. There's only two beyond the pictures that you see of him with a mask on. Yu was born on April the 18th, 1970, into a blue-collar family. He was born in a small village of Waha in Gochang County, which is in North Cheola province of South Korea. Yu actually had two older brothers, and then he came along as an unexpected child, meaning that his parents didn't want him from all of the accounts, but later they will still, regardless, have one more child, so he will end up having a younger sister. His childhood, just like the childhood of many serial killers, was pretty unstable. His parents divorced when he was young, and he ended up living with his grandmother. This grandmother will be the one saying that he was an unwanted child, and she even told him, when he was really impressionable and still young, that his mother even considered killing him as a baby. Yu's dad was a Vietnam War veteran, so once he returned from the war, Yu moved in to live with his father. From the Vietnam War, Yu's dad had quite a hefty soldier's pay, however, he gambled most of it away and just decided to run and make poor business decisions. So, eventually, all of that money was drained, and Yu was back to just instability and living in poverty with his dad. His dad will end up remarrying, and it was said that the stepmother was abusive, but it was said that she was abusive towards Yu's sister, but she actually feared Yu, and she wouldn't ever hit him. The stepmother would say that Yu would have her unnerved, just from how he was able to stare at her for hours on end, with such contempt and hate. They lived in the Mapo district. This was a poor area. They had no electricity and running water. And when he was eight years old, Yu picked up his younger sister, and they decided to run away from home to go and live with their mother, who lived in the same area. His school records from the Seoul Gondeok Elementary School show that he was quiet and polite. He always knew how to speak to the elders, and he was responsible from a young age, possibly because the adults weren't such a solid presence in his life, meaning that he had to take charge of 
doing even the basic household chores. However, because he was quite poor, because the family wasn't well off, because, you know, he would bring packed lunch to school that probably he prepared for himself, he experienced quite a lot of bullying from the school kids. On one occasion, he actually brought this sticky rice with some bean paste to school, and the kids called him out, saying that he brought shit for lunch. So he was quite isolated. He always had to account for adults. And soon, one such adult figure is going to leave him forever. Because his dad, from gambling, from wasting his money away, turned to alcoholism. Around this time, his dad broke up with his second wife, and his health just took a turn, he deteriorated, and he started drinking and drowning in alcohol. His dad eventually ended up dying in a car accident, and from that point on, something shifted in you. He started blaming the rich, blaming any sort of wealth for the way he lived his life. Because had they not lived such a miserable life, had his dad, you know, been thriving, had he been able to sustain that soldier's pay, which again is all on his dad, but this isn't how you were seeing him, well, he wouldn't have turned to alcoholism, he wouldn't have divorced his second wife, probably wouldn't have divorced his mom to begin with, and in the end, the cause of effect wouldn't have led to his death. After one of his arrests, you will speak about this to the investigators, saying that when he was a child, there was this large, rich house near theirs, and he always desired to live in such a place. He was quite insecure because he was from a poor family, and later that kind of morphed into his hatred towards the wealthy. The rich were, in turn, to be blamed for his miserable life. He wouldn't turn to crime just yet, though, which I find extremely interesting. He would have to have some further rejections, however, before he does turn to petty crime and eventually more and more violent crimes. You was quite an artistic soul, which, according to plenty of YouTube videos that I have watched, can sometimes be associated with psychopaths or sociopaths because the way that they can express themselves with art can never translate to words. And all of his artist work that was shown in this documentary was quite disturbing, and also could give you quite an insight about, again, issues surrounding his identity, how he saw himself, how he saw others, and could have indicated to people even possibly how he saw the society that he was in. You entered middle school in 1984, and he was a self-proclaimed genius, which, if somebody tells you that their IQ is super high, but you can't confirm it, like, by their school records, just please know that they're lying. They're lying, motherfuckers, okay? So, he said his IQ was 140. Normal IQ, from what I know, is sort of between, like, 120 and 30, so he wanted to be above that. But all of the school records indicated that his IQ was between 90 and 100, so a lot lower than what he was saying. However, nobody denied that he was a talented artist. 
And this wasn't limited to just drawings and paintings. I've read in multiple sources that he was actually colorblind, but that he still enjoyed painting, that he enjoyed poetry, that he was quite musical. He was even in a gospel group at a church. He even formed a singing group with his friends to compete in a talent contest. He would play guitar, sing, paint, read poetry all throughout the elementary school, and he was that into arts and he thought he had a talent, so he applied to high school that specialized in them. However, this is where he will be denied the admissions to the art school, meaning that instead he had to end up resorting to going to technical high school in 1987. And it will be this rejection that will set some petty crimes into motion. During his second year of high school, he would end up stealing a guitar and a sonic cassette player from this neighbor's house. This would end up being his first crime, and it was reported, so he was put into the juvenile detention center. Whether it is because of this, or because he actually never displayed an interest into such a school, because he was rejected from the school that he actually intended to go to, well, he never graduated from this technical school. But now, something that I expected to find during this research was, you know, you got a job, a menial job, doing XYZ to support his family. But that is something that I could never find. Like, how was he getting any money? How was he surviving during this time? And it will turn that it was mostly crime. But you have to think that this is probably something that he saw within his family dynamic as he was growing up, as he was living with his father, who had that soldier's pay, you know? How would you see something like that as a small child? You would probably see it as, you know, a donation or like the pay that you got and now you don't have to work, right? You could just spend that money on whatever and you see your father spending it on gambling and alcohol, which are technically addictions. But when you are that young, when you are that impressionable and you don't see your parents going out and doing like normal jobs, I think it leaves a huge imprint on your mind as to how you are supposed to live your life. The money is just supposed to come to you, whether you take it, whether you steal it, and then you're just supposed to spend it until you go out, take it again, take what belongs to you. That is the crucial thing, I think, in this story that has been missed out, and that is that you, to a certain degree, believed that he was deservant of this wealth. He was deservant to live in the house that his neighbors lived in, that he saw down the road. He was, just by birth, deservant of it. And that's why he hated the rich, because he didn't get what he thought it was his right to get. In 1991, a few things happened that set everything into motion. First of all, he got married. He got married to this masseuse on Christmas of 1991. And these were the happy times for you. He met this woman, he was in love with her, he wanted to marry her, he wanted to have a child with her, and so he did. But then in the place where him and his wife lived in, the landlord raised up the rent and you couldn't pay it up. 
I don't know if he had a job, his wife did, but basically he couldn't afford it, so he decided to go and rob a place. So he stole a camera and about $500 in cash. However, there was security footage of this, so he was imprisoned for 10 months. And here, when his mom visited him in jail, he asked her to take care of his wife and son. Just as he got out in jail, in 1993, he found a car with the keys in the ignition, so he decided to steal it. He gets caught here again and gets another eight months in jail. And now we kind of see a recurring pattern. You know, he will be released on the streets and will resort to petty crimes. But it is because of his time in jail that certain crimes started popping in his head more and more. And it is because of the literature he has read there. In 1998, he would end up in prison again. He ended up forging some official documents and also impersonated some government officials. And because of this repetitive process, when he was behind bars, these fantasies started to become more and more solid and turned into plans. He started reading articles and literature about another famous Korean serial killer. Probably gonna butcher this name, Jeong Duyeong. And this prolific serial killer targeted rich people. So you started making a plan of how he could do the same once he gets out of the prison again. Here, instead of you having finished school, possibly even going to uni, then doing something with his art, whether it is as a hobby or whether it is as his main profession, we see that he never graduated from high school, and that he was actually isolated from society because he would end up spending the 11 years before his spree that we know him for behind bars. He was actually charged 14 times for 14 different petty crimes. Well, one of them wasn't so petty. We're going to speak about it next. But something that I've seen from this book that was written on you is called Murder Addiction. This guy is the only person that mentions this, but I find it important because... I think it is relevant, and it is also another commonality when it comes to the serial killers. And that is that usually they do have some mental health issues that are caused by, like, a strong hit to the head. That usually affects the lobe in their brain that is to prevent them from making any rational decisions, and that also is to prevent them from controlling their urges. With you, there were references of him having epilepsy to a certain extent. Between 1993 and 1995, he even got treatment as a day patient at the National Mental Hospital in the Yonggok neighborhood of Seoul. There are speculations that he had blackouts when he was playing sports in school and that those are now known as what would have been epileptic seizures. The author of this book speculated that you had manic depressive disorder. His brother, so the second brother, the one that was older than him, was a manic depressive. And in 1994, this brother got drunk and committed suicide at the age of 32. And we know that you will commit this spree when he was 33 years of age. So the author of this book speculates that maybe you thought that his end is near. 
that he was to die at a young age, just like his brother did. So that kind of heightened his impulses, because he wouldn't have been able to control his urges. The 14th conviction, the straw that broke the camel's back, you could really say, was actually a rape of a 15-year-old girl. And, of course, as soon as he was charged for this, this was it for his wife. She finally decided, okay, petty thefts, you know, robberies were one thing, but this I can't have. Like, I can't have you back after you serve time for this. And you're also not gonna be able to see your son. In 2002, while he was still in prison, his wife divorced him, and this divorce also included him being barred from visitations to his son. So, in September 2002, once he got out of jail, he had to return to his family home. He had to return to Mapo district to live back with his mom. And you can see where the hatred towards women now begins. As he himself would later put it, women should not be sluts, and the rich should know what they have done. In order to make money during this time, he decided to resort to the only thing that he knew how to, crime. And he, before, was imprisoned for forging some documents, but he decided, you know what, people in the red light district wouldn't know better. The sex workers and the pimps, they just wouldn't be able to recognize a fake police ID. So that is exactly what he did. He conjured up the whole ass ID, and then he would turn up in the red light district, and because he knew that certain businesses were done illegally, he would extort money from both sex workers and their pimps. And that is how he afforded to move out from his mom's flat and get his own. And this flat actually had a deposit of around $4,000, and then he would pay roughly around $450 in rent each month. Just so you get the vibe of this place, this flat was in this small commercial building, and it was only about a couple of steps, like 50 steps, away from a police station, and around 200 steps from the next convenience store. Which probably was also the reason why, you know, people in the Red District were buying that he was actually a police officer. But also, how risky would that have been for him? This apartment was, from everything that the police officer said, in perfect condition. He was kind of a neat freak to a certain extent. The clothes would be hung neatly in this rack. You know, he had one of those racks instead of a wardrobe where he would hang clothes. And he only had a few personal possessions. The bookshelves near his bed revealed that he was still very much after getting enough money in order to get back the custody of his son, or get his son back in any form. He would hold on to things like newspaper cutouts of toys that he wanted to buy his son, different ads for different pistols, list of certain pop singers and their songs, notes about cars, about music equipment, about computers. 
And this bookshelf also had his son's notebook that he used when he was still living with him, where he would fill it out with different crayon pictures. So I assume this was some form of coloring book. So during the day, you would sleep in this flat, he would wake up, he would watch movies, and most probably pornography from what we know. And then he had different DVDs in the drawer next to his computer. He would watch Korean movie called Public Enemy, which was about a story of this police officer who ended up hunting a serial killer that killed his parents. And then he watched American movies like Very Bad Things and Normal Life. And then, as soon as the night fell, he would step out of his flat and pick up the calling cards off the ground, which were everywhere, because he was right at the doorstep of the red light district. On these cards, you would usually see a picture of a naked, beautiful woman promising hot sex with a number to ring. This won't translate in his mind just as of yet because his spree is about to start, but he is about to start it by targeting the rich. It was said in multiple sources that you didn't wait for long. He did everything that I have just told you, found his new flat, moved out from his mom's, started extorting money from the red light district, sex workers and pimps within 13 days from the time that he was released from prison. He was released on September the 11th, 2003, and he committed his first gruesome murder on September the 24th. This, to me, says that he probably planned this, he planned this well inside of the jail cell, because he used quite a particular weapon. So, he used this, everybody says hammer, I would say this is a sledgehammer if I've ever seen one, but he even customized this further. So, of course, the handle of this was much longer, but he immediately cut that handle so that it better fits his grip. Usually only armed with his sledgehammer and sometimes a knife, he would decide on a household on the day. He would just be passing it by and decide that this is the house he's going to break into. So September the 24th, 2003 was no different. The house he picked looked to him easy to break into. Most of the houses in the rich neighborhoods in South Korea at the time just had this walled area around the house, between the courtyard and the actual house. And usually the homeowners of these rich areas use that area of the courtyard in order to cultivate things like bonsai trees, different plants, and sort of to also show off in a way meaning that the outer wall usually was between shoulder length to the head level length, so it wouldn't really be hard to jump over it. That day, you snuck into this house in the upscale Seoul neighborhood of Sin Sadong, and the house was owned by the 72-year-old Lee Deok-soo, who was a professor at the university, and his 68-year-old wife. Before they could even react and realize what has happened, he attacked them both with a hammer. After he made sure that he had bludgeoned them to death, he checked to see if they were dead. 
after which he ended up locking the bedroom door and leaving through the front door, just as if he is the owner of this house himself. He took a towel from this house in order to clean up his bloody pants, and then he remembered he had a knife on him. Apparently, in all of this hassle, he realized that he left the knife in the locked bedroom. So, he went inside, because, of course, the police is first going to realize that something is out of place. He kicked open the door, he took his knife, put it back into his bag. And this is when he noticed that he left a bloody footprint on the door that he just barged into. So, he used that towel to partially remove it. He also realized that the police, who is going to arrive to the scene like this, is going to be looking for a motivation, like why were these people targeted. So, he opened up the wardrobe and sort of tossed the contents around so that it looked like a robbery. But it was said by the police here, just like in other crime scenes of his, that he didn't steal any money or jewelry. I found other sources that stated that he did from these rich household attacks and murders, that he did actually accumulate about $100,000, and that that is how he supported himself, but the documentary doesn't state that. He says that on all of these crime scenes, they just found the staged robbery, but no money was actually taken. In fact, I found in some sources that he would taunt the victims before he would struck them sometimes, and he would even ask them, like, do you think I'm doing this for money? Just to prove the point, even though nobody was really to take his word for it, because everybody that would face you would end up dead. After this crime and all of these crimes in the rich neighborhoods that he will commit, he would go to the closest subway station, make sure that he changes there if he still had any bloody clothes, then he would take the train and return to his flat, as if nothing had happened. His murder soon ended up picking up speed, so he wouldn't wait long. On October the 9th, he took the subway train to Bulgwang Station, and then he took a cab to Gugi Tunnel. He ended up walking until he found this church, and until he found this expensive-looking house in the rich neighborhood. What he would look for was CCTV, so did the house have security system, and this house seemed not to have one. Then he checked the wall, you know, how easy it is to jump over it, how easy it is to be spotted. Then he would just stop and watch people inside as they're moving through their windows, and then would decide when is the right time to go in and attack, and he would climb the wall, wearing those gloves, with a sledgehammer in hand. Here, he forced himself inside of this house, and he immediately attacked a grandmother that crossed his way, smashing her head with that hammer. The wife of the homeowner here ran down the stairs, and she spotted that her mom is dead, so you kicked her into the stomach and asked to know if there were more people in the house. And this woman said that her husband and son were upstairs. So, he proceeds to bludgeon her, and then goes upstairs to bludgeon her disabled son. The husband wasn't there during the murders, but if I remember right, he was in this documentary. And what the documentary does really well is that you feel like you're one of the people actually discovering this crime scene. Like, you get the chills 
down your spine because it is the survivor's guilt of somebody discovering a crime scene like this and you know that well, you think that if you had been there, you would have been able to prevent something like this. Which isn't true, but also your brain cannot commute it right then and there. After he started looking for the husband, realizing that he actually isn't there, he found the safe and again scattered different contents around to just make sure to disguise this scene so that it looks like a robbery had happened as well as murder. Here, he would double-check to ensure that no one was still alive, and after that, he would again partially clean his footprints with that towel. He then walked back to the Gugi Tunnel, and then took a taxi back to that same subway station, and then went back to his flat. And this is where the documentary starts, with this scene, because it was one of the most brutal crime scenes with the killer, of the grandmother and the other people in that house. We find out that the police here had a second footprint and that they managed to connect to the one from the first crime scene, so they realized, okay, even though the neighborhoods are different, this kind of starts to look like the killer's MO, and then if the fingerprints are matching, even to a certain degree, could be the same shoe, could be the same killer. What they said about the son's body is that it was struck so many times that the brain matter was everywhere, which I see as A, so sinister and gruesome, but B, that he has such deeply rooted identity issues that to me all of these crimes seem like he's finding a victim of his age, his gender, if possible, on these crime scenes, where he can reflect all of the hate that he feels towards himself. I say that because, in my opinion, on these crime scenes, before he switched his MO, as we're going to talk about later, he does seem to exhibit most amount of violence towards the sons. Sometimes, if he could find a father figure, it would be the father. But this is, during this spree, he would claim nine victims. And out of those nine victims, the most violence was always exhibited towards the male family members. And I know partially this is my brain being fueled by all of the crime series that we have all watched as kids, all of the profiler kind of series, but something that I want you to have in the back of your head, because I have seen it one too many times in true crime stories as well, when it comes to, for example, Ed Kemper. Even Ed Gein. Ed Kemper went back to killing his mom. Well, I think he actually started with killing his mom, which was the source of his hatred, the source of his anger. Ed Gein was said to possibly, potentially, allegedly, had killed his brother because, you know, his brother was an obstacle between him and the love that he had for Augusta, for his mom. Those are just the ones that come on top of my head. But usually these killers either return after certain crimes, after certain sprees, to the actual source of their anger, to the source of that hatred, or they start off with it. Here, in terms of his parents, his dad was already dead. I don't necessarily think that he had so much anger bottled towards his mom because of what comes later, but just bear this in mind, because there is one thing in particular that might have triggered 
all of this and that he might still be having that bottled up rage towards. And I just kept thinking as I was watching this documentary and doing this research, if he was to be still roaming free, what was the end game here? If he hadn't been caught, would the end game have been going after a particular target? Back to the crime scene here, while they were waiting for that bloody footprint to be processed to be compared with the first crime scene, well, of course, they had to look at the most probable suspect, which would have been the husband. And this was so gut-wrenching. Like, literally everybody here that gave interviews, even the investigators were like, yeah, this man was so grief-stricken that we immediately knew that it wasn't him. They have said that he was even speaking with the fish that they had inside of the house. They had an aquarium. And this man would even, like, in his delusions, in his grief, he would be speaking with the fish inside of that aquarium, asking them who did this. Just tell me who did this, who committed this crime. Here, truly, the police officers believe that this is an investigation that is going to be closed shut within a week because it seemed to have been a crime of passion, meaning that it would have been somebody who knew these victims. But, you know, after a week of interrogating everybody in this family's vicinity, the neighbors, the family members, the friends, they realized that they might need to move on from what they call the primitive investigation and actually look into hiring some behavioral analysts to hire some form of profilers to look into this. Once the profilers are put on the case, we find out a bit about the background of South Korea. That between 1963 and 1980, there was a huge economic growth after the war. But this affected different people differently. People who already had something, people who already amassed some wealth, just got richer. Whereas the people that were already poor, that were already living in these marginalized communities, only got poorer. Which would have led them, this second group, to the feeling of alienation. Meaning that they probably felt like they can't even fully participate as the member of the society. Which, if you think about this in respect to this case, this was the whole of the young Chul family. They have been living in this district, they didn't even have running hot water as he was growing up, and even the way that he was living now would always have led him to resort to crime, which would lead to him not feeling like the member of the society, which would further lead him to having this constant identity crisis. Just as these behavioral analysts are put on the case and they believe they might get somewhere with the footprints, he strikes again. On October the 16th, he hopped onto another subway train to Seolong Station, and after that he walked into another affluent neighborhood of the Gangnam District. Here he yet again found a house with a big garden, and in broad daylight, Around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he put his gloves on and approached the front door, jumping over it with the sledgehammer in his hand. 
At that time, Mrs. Yu, who was 69 years old and who was wife of a homeowner and a millionaire that lived there, came out to get her mail. And just as she went back inside, Yu crept into the house right behind her. He threatens her with a knife that he had on him and asks if anybody else was at home. When she tells him that nobody is, he then dragged her into the bathroom, and this is where he would hammer her three or four times in the back of her head. Yet again, he scatters the items in order to stage a robbery in the master bedroom. He wipes partially the bloodstains off of his shoes, attempts to clear the smeared footprints, leaves the house and walks back to the Gangnam Ward office station. Which, when I read that, I thought he walked into a police station. It is a subway station. (laughs) I had to Google it. I was like, sorry, what? He just walked into a police station, all bloodied up, but no. Here, when the police shows up on the scene, they see a blatant pattern showing up. They immediately know that this was done by the same person. They suspected a male suspect from the beginning, but here they started thinking about the weapon, because now they had three crime scenes to compare this to, three autopsies, And from the markings, from the dents in these people's skulls, they started looking for a weapon that he would have used. They even hung all of these different weapons, these different kinds of hammers on the wall to try to figure this out, because these dents did look quite particular. And later, when you find out what kind of sledgehammer you are looking for, it does seem quite custom-made, to the point that I would probably say that this isn't sold anywhere. I would be interested if somebody's actually watching from South Korea, because this is one thing that I constantly had, like, in my head as I was researching this case. Like, this isn't just the hammer that you would buy in your store, in your B&Q, or whatever the equivalent is in South Korea. Like, this is quite custom-made, and he made it even more customized to himself. But do you sell sledgehammers anywhere like this? Or is this, like, the most common sledgehammer that you can find in the country? As they're looking at the weapons, they also search the whole house with the outsides to find the footprint, to see if they can compare it to the previous two crime scenes. And here on the AC, just outside, they manage to find another smudgy footprint that they take the prints from. And another thing that emerged from this crime scene that the documentary loops us in on is the violence, because they are, at this point, having to deal with the possibility that this might be a serial killer. And if so, they're suspecting somebody possibly with some mental health issues, and that is why that violence is displayed. So, instead of a crime of passion, instead of somebody close to the family committing these crimes, now they have to look at it differently. So, they went to all of the mental health institutions in the area, asking for people who were committed to those with violent offenses in the past, But this ended up being a dead end. There were no people with any violent offenses that were at any point committed to these mental health institutions. A whole month passes by, at least from what we know, actually just a bit over a month. 
And this time, when you strikes again, because he hasn't been caught and he won't stop on his own, he seems to be getting even more cocky. Just something to note, as I don't really know where to mention this, I am not saying full names of the victims, mostly because even in the documentary and from everything I've seen online, like their faces have been blurred in pictures, their identities seem to be protected. You can find it even on Wikipedia or elsewhere, you can find the full names, but if the Netflix documentary wanted to protect their identities, you know, who am I? not to, and probably I don't want to get into any legal trouble as either. So just so that you know why I'm not mentioning some of the full names of these victims. So he hasn't been caught, and of course he decides to follow the same MO, the same urge, and to strike again in another affluent neighborhood. The day would be November the 18th, and it would be even earlier, it would be around 11 a.m., he would take another subway train to Hanseong University Station. Here he was looking for another house in an affluent neighborhood, but he seemed to be, in all of these cases, looking for a house near a church. I think this is probably to do with the culture, with the homeowners of these houses, probably the wealthiest ones living close to churches, but also it probably has to do with him getting more and more cocky, because here, in the area, he noticed a small police station as well. So he decided this is a prime place for him to commit a crime because the residents would feel safe in such an area. Fucking moron. He is so cocky at this point and following this urge that it doesn't even resonate in his head that what this means is that there might be a huge chance of there being CCTV footage in that area as well. Just like during his other sprees, here he lurks around the house, checks for all of the exits, looks into the windows to see if people are moving around, if there is anybody in there, clears the back wall, puts the gloves on, and uses a gas pipe to climb down. When he enters the home, a baby cry has been heard from the house, so he knew that at least somebody was home. He enters through the front door here and then goes up to the second floor, but he doesn't find anybody. So as he is walking down the stairs, he spots a 53-year-old housekeeper, Miss Bay. He pulls his knife out here and asks her to go into the master bedroom. There he will find the owner of the house, Mr. Kim, who is an 87-year-old man lying on his bed, and he didn't wait a second before he hammered his skull. Miss Bay instinctively reached for the child, who was crying and screaming, trying to protect the infant, but you took the child from her arms. He put the baby on the sofa and covered her with a blanket, and then he took the hammer and bludgeoned Miss Bay, the housekeeper, until she was dead. The child was left alive. The child was left alive. When I heard that part, I was like, I need this confirmed right now, so I'm just gonna let you in on it. The baby was okay. The baby was the only survivor here, really. 
After he made sure that all of the grown-ups that could identify him were dead, he heads upstairs towards the room where he was to find the safe. And here he uses shears to try to open that safe at the golf club to kind of like smash that entrance to it. Which makes me believe like maybe he did actually need to rob this place in terms of like the money to pay for his rent at least. Because why risk it? Because by using those shears, he actually cut himself. And now he's bleeding on the scene of the crime. And he knows that he shouldn't be leaving any DNA, because he has been cleaning his bloody footprints so far, so he understands that leaving the DNA on the scene of the crime is far from ideal. So what he decides to do is to take the black jacket so that the blood isn't noticed dripping from his body. So he snatches a black jacket, but then decides that isn't enough. So he decides to burn the room where he had cut himself. And now he leaves the house. He's watching it from a distance, but the house isn't catching on fire. So whatever he did to that room, luckily didn't actually spread to the rest of the house because the baby was found alive. So he's looking at it, and now he sees another woman that he suspects might be the mom, the family member, entering the house. So he realizes in a matter of seconds here, the police is going to be called, the firefighters are going to be called. I need to get lost. Here, this will finally result in him making a mistake, because he left his DNA behind, he left his footprints behind, as always, and not just that, but here, there was a CCTV footage of him calmly leaving the scene of the crime. When the police makes it to the scene here, they immediately spot the patterns. And here, because from the documentary, we are led to believe they join on the second scene of the crime. So here, they have at least three of the footprints, and they realize that they are dealing with a serial killer. And with the footprints now being processed, and with the grainy footage, they go to the media. Because they have nothing to lose at this point. Yes, this footage is of him walking with his back turned to the camera, but again, we have at least the height. We have that he was 168 centimeters tall. We have the posture, we have the black jacket, we have the bag. Possibly somebody spotted him walking towards the subway station. Possibly somebody would be able to identify him. This will be short-lived because nobody would actually come forward. However, it has led to a change in how the police departments operated at the time. From the documentary, we actually learn that South Korea's police departments kept to their own districts until that point. They would only publicize crimes after they were solved in order to help their chances of promotion and funding. And this lack of communication between regions, as well as the lack of evidence left at the crime scenes, plus the lack of the knowledge of the murder weapon, really stopped the initial investigation. So here they finally decide to work together. The police stations in all of the districts realize that they need an operation going. They organize stakeouts in all of these different areas. They would stop the cars on the road. And you'll hear it in the documentary, you know, people, police officers saying, like, please cooperate. We are on the lookout of a dangerous killer. Can we search your car? Can we search your trunk? They were looking 
and stopping people, you know, who would go to like different departments with their bags, search the cars, looking for anything that would even possibly resemble the idea that they had of the murder weapon. The behavioral analysts looked at the districts where he struck and realized, hey, maybe there's something to do with the Korean alphabet. Like, the districts had, like, matching consonants. So, the first part of the name, the second part of the name. So, maybe that is it. Because, as we know, in the US, especially, there were the alphabet murders. There are people who have these weird fixations where, you know, they would strike a person because their first and last name starts with the same letter. You never know. But this didn't pan out. They were trying to predict, like, what would be the next district where he would strike. But, unfortunately, this serial killer decided to stop with his crimes. Or at least to stop with the crimes that they were aware that he was committing. Suddenly, all of the crimes switched from being, you know, the affluent house apparently being burglarized and the members of the household brutally killed to the crimes of women getting attacked in the streets, in the Red District area, while walking along in the alleyways. Similar MO, but completely different to what they were used to. So, immediately you can see that it didn't translate to the police stations that this would be the same criminal. But after a couple of news broadcasts of similar crimes, they decided to now do stakeouts in cars. So, to literally sit in the cars in these areas where the crimes would happen and to try to figure out what weapon was used in these instances as well. Because it was unimaginable to the police officers that suddenly this place that so far didn't really have many serial killers, out of the blue has two of them operating. That this was the work of two different serial killers. And here is where we get to all of those calling cards that you would see as he would exit the apartment. Finally, one day, he picked one of them and decided to ring the number. One of the first escort girls that he would meet when calling this phone sex establishment would actually end up dating him for a very brief period of time. But just let's sit in that for a while. In the middle of his murderous spree, this guy managed to get a girlfriend. So, if you ever feel like, you know, there isn't any hope for you, trust me, there is. If freaking you manage to get a girl, you will as well. Luckily, this girl spotted a lot of red flags straight up and left him. Probably in the matter of days, actually, because everything from this point on happens really rapidly. Sources state that they started dating on December the 11th, 2003, and that he actually even proposed to her within possibly days, at most weeks, but that somehow she might have learned about his criminal record, mental instability, even his divorce, and that she rejected him, and that this is going to set the next couple of murders into motion. To recap, his divorce made him bitter. The fact that he wasn't born rich and couldn't also accumulate any wealth without actually robbing places in order to get his son back made him even more bitter. And then finally, an escort girl that he ends up hiring, falling for, even wishing to marry, rejects him. 
he has released some of that anger towards the rich people, towards that community. However, now a different kind of rage is building inside of him, and it is all aimed towards the escorts. Before he starts this spree, however, he has another unfortunate set of events in January of 2004, and he gets arrested. This man got arrested. Everything from this point on could have been prevented had they just checked his criminal record. Possibly had they checked anything, really, like DNA, took, like, footprints, if it was logical, maybe, possibly, to, like, actually look at all these people being arrested. They could have even connected him to the spree of him killing the wealthy residents. But no. He gets arrested because he robbed a sauna. I don't know. It isn't clear. Anyways. He, from all of the sources, was held briefly. I don't really know what briefly means. However, he was released by the time he would strike again on February the 6th. So whatever briefly meant, it was probably less than a month. And as soon as he was released, he is by this point thinking he's invincible. But he also knows that he needs to switch up on his MO, and he has been rejected one too many times, so he knows that this next part is going to be quite easy for him. His next couple of kills would be in the alleyways of the red light district. He would just struck this victim in front of restaurants where they didn't want to go home with him, where they didn't want to go have a drink with him after he would show his police ID to them. And the police at this point was running stakeouts. But then, after a couple of those crimes, he realized that the risk is much higher on the streets, and that he needs to remove that obstacle. He needs to remove the risk. And the only way to do so was to get the women to come to him. According to the Korean Institute of Criminology, South Korea's sex trade was valued at $20.4 billion. This makes it 4.1% of the gross domestic product, GDP, which means that it is larger than the utility industries. Even though the sex trade is illegal in South Korea, our serial killer, Yu, could have opted into a variety of options here. We've touched upon this when we spoke about the hostessing in Japan in the case of Lucy Blackman and Joji Obara, but here the range was quite vast in itself. There were karaoke singing rooms, there were love hotels, there were coffee shops where you can get a ticket in order to get a woman. Most of the health-related quote-unquote businesses usually were the fronts for sex work. So, saunas, steam, bathhouses, sports massage parlors. And these women were all just a phone call away. The pimps, people who were working above them, would arrange these appointments straight away. They would confirm it with the text of the address where you're supposed to meet the sex worker, at any time, in the middle of the day, if you wanted, during the night, at any point, you would call, they would call her back, and then confirm it via text. But in order to remove that obstacle, in order to remove the risk, you resorted to phone sex. In Korean, again, I'm gonna butcher this expression, Jeonwa bang means phone room. 
And the expression does really what it says on the tin. These are some small dark rooms with a phone, a TV, a video player possibly loaded with a ton of porn, some lounge chair and tissues on the side. The customer would usually pay by the hour, they would enter the phone and they would wait for the phone to ring. The woman is on the other end of that phone line, she's chatting with you, and there is sometimes a possibility of you meeting that woman later. About 57% of these calls would end up in the client and the sex worker having sex within four hours. So you knew that he had to remove that obstacle. So this is how he started. But eventually he would arrange to meet up with this person. They would meet up in the middle of nowhere and then he would start bringing them to his flat. However, not before he realized for him to even arrange these meetups to even be able to have sex with these women, he needed a ton of Viagra. So his next victim in this spree wouldn't even be an escort, wouldn't even be a sex worker, it would be a vendor. One of those random vendors on the side of the road that you would see in such districts. So one night he just headed out and got this Viagra from a vendor called Mr. Anne. And Mr. N just happened to sell him some counterfeit Viagra. So basically it wasn't working, right? It was some fake pills. I don't know what the hell they were doing, but they weren't doing their job in that way. So Yuri turns to threaten Mr. N with his police ID. However, now this vendor, Mr. N, a smart freaking person, says, well, the police station is like 50 steps from us, so... I'm gonna go and check if you are the real police officer, because that police ID doesn't really look great. And you can't have that. So he somehow manages to convince Mr. Ant to go into the van with him, or he waits for them to finish their work and then forces them into the van without, you know, the observers nearby, and then kills them inside of the van this time with his knife goes up to his flat to clean up. Nobody apparently sees this man bloodied up anywhere on these streets. He goes upstairs, changes clothes, takes his knife again into the van, and then brings the body of Mr. N and brings this van to Walmi district. It's Walmi Island, 25 kilometers west of Seoul. Here, he is going to cut off the hands of Mr. N so that you know, they can't identify the person by their fingerprints. He will take those, put them into a plastic bag and put their hands over the bridge into the river. And then he's going to torch his van on fire. Just like in his other crimes here, he decides not to take a cab because he figures there is a greater chance of a cab driver recognizing him. Possibly, you know, if he had the blood on him, he was under shock. So he takes a subway train home. After this kill, he set his plan into motion. He would ring up that line, he would arrange with a pimp to meet with a woman, he would usually meet her at an arranged location that would be close enough to his flat, but not exactly his flat so that they can't track it to him. He would then bring them to his flat and he would pretend to be offering them money for their time and services. But later he would say he usually wouldn't actually have sex with them, 
for the fear of DNA tracking. And as soon as the woman was ready to leave, she would go to his bathroom to brush up, to check her makeup in the mirror, and this is when he would struck her. He called his bathroom seal the threshold between life and death. He kept a hammer just within reach, so that as soon as his victim would pass that seal, that threshold, he would struck her immediately over the head. Here, I'm going to put a timestamp on the screen, because I'm going to talk about how he dismembered his victims, and it is quite graphic, and even I was so disturbed by a single point in this case. It was... I had to take a break. As I was watching this documentary, I was just like, this is too much, even for me. So, just a heads up, skip to this timestamp if you don't want to hear this. Once he would hit their heads enough times for the victim to be dead, the heads would be the first ones to go. And here comes the most disturbing part of all of that. He would take the victim's hair and put it into a hairband, right? Like, as if into a ponytail, and then he would hang the victim's head over the toilet roll holder. This, if your mind isn't as disturbed as mine, because I didn't figure out why, because in my head I thought, like, why would you do this even in your next level delusional brain, because then isn't the victim technically looking at you as you are cleaning up the rest of the crime scene, but it was done so that the blood drains out of the victim quicker. He lived on the third floor, so he knew he had to dismember these victims, and he had to dismember them carefully. And he would even go to the x-ray technicians to have x-rays of his own body done, so that he's familiar with the human anatomy, and that he knows what he's doing. And this would lead him to, after removing the head, removing the victim's fingerprints. So, basically, shaving off the skin under their fingers. Because in South Korea, all of the citizens have the national identification number, so, like, social security equivalent, that they are fingerprinted by the government for. So, he knew that he had to remove the rest of their bodies, but especially the fingerprints. After this, he would chop the bodies apart and stuff them into the plastic bags, and then he would take them out of the apartment as soon as he could, so that the smell doesn't reach the neighbors. A neighbor said that a lot of nights he would just hear the water running in this man's toilet. And because he would dispose of them quickly, the smell wouldn't really reach the neighbors as of yet, so they couldn't just report it for, what, him having showers for hours? They didn't know what really was going on. If you are back, welcome. This was the most gruesome part. We are still to touch upon certain bits, but they aren't as graphic, and they're quite crucial towards this investigation. So, there was one moment in this dismembering, in how he was doing it, that he actually got scared. One single moment, after everything I've just told you. And that was when his son called him in the middle of it, and he kind of felt that his son spotted some panic in his voice, and that his son actually knew who his dad was and what he had become. Just so that this sinks in, between early April and mid-July, he murdered at least 10 women. 
that we know of, that he would confess to later. As I mentioned, he lived on the third floor, so he would have to dispose of these bodies quickly. Once they were in the plastic bags, he would fill those bags with kimchi, which would mask up the smell of the decomposing bodies. And then he knew of this place by Bongwan Temple, which was kind of like behind it. There was this brushy hillside, forest-like area, and this is where he would head with the loaded backpack. According to his confessions later, each body required two trips. He would bury them into shallow graves, and later, once buried, he would mark up the grave so that he would avoid burying the bodies into the same spot. Usually by four o'clock in the morning, he would be finished and he would return to his flat. And this is where he decided to save the victim cells, to save their mobile phones, in order for him to avoid calling the pimps, calling the sex phone establishments from his own phone number. Yeah, because that is the smartest decision in all of this, calling them from the victim's numbers. They all make the dumbest decisions, and this is how they get caught. According to the Netflix doc, just like the Bundys of this world, like so many people, he was also stopped by a police officer when he had a body in the car with that kimchi smell just ruminating through it. And the cop didn't even go through his trunk because of the smell. He just asked him, like, oh, you transported kimchi? And he just said yes and got away with it while going to a disposal site. And also, according to the documentary, not only would he bury the bodies, mark the graves so that he doesn't mix them all up, but he also would prepare for his next kill. So he would also make sure that there is a burial site ready at any point. And that is because he gradually became quicker. So the interval was first a month, then it started being fortnight, and then the murders would happen once a week. Because of this, there was just this energy in the air. Women started going home earlier than usual, sales of pepper spray, gas guns, security alarms have gone up, the sex workers were aware that something was happening within their industry and they would work with each other, they would warn each other to always be careful not to go to a flat with anybody. And unfortunately, because these were treated as people who were less dead, these were people from marginalized communities, only two of the sex workers that you has killed were even reported to the police because they just wouldn't return to work, and the pimp would think that's normal. They might have moved on, they might have changed industry. Like, they never cared. They never treated these women as employees, and that is why nobody really even reported them to the police. And in his mind, he's just getting bolder and bolder with each kill. And because it isn't targeted in a way where he didn't go after, I don't know, his mom, his ex-wife, his ex-girlfriend, the one that also left him and didn't want to marry him. He went after surrogates, possible surrogates for these women, because his ex-girlfriend was also in the sex work industry. So, it leads me to believe that maybe there is something more to it. 
and if you are into profiling criminal minds, whatever shows that you have watched that are sort of into this behavioral analysis, you might enjoy this sideline. And this is purely based off of once, well, I learned about his pattern of killing sex workers, but also, according to one report, he sometimes would even eat parts of the victims. Usually he would eat their livers, and he said he believed it would cleanse his spirit. Now, I am not 100% sure if this is true, it would still be risky to keep any parts of his victims inside of that flat, but it made me think of moral enforcers, which would be the profile of such type of killer, the ones that would be lurking the streets looking for sex workers. Usually, if you believe in this type of profile, they are mission-orientated, and they believe that it is their duty to clean up the crime on the streets. The crimes often appear to be personal, and this is what makes them even more unpredictable and dangerous. They gain confidence with each and every murder, and as the confidence grows, so will the belief in the cause. According to the stats, this kind of perpetrator won't be arrested at the end of the investigation, because with this type of serial crimes, the killer usually doesn't want to go down easily, and sometimes that means that they are not apprehended alive. I just wanted to briefly touch upon that profile, because it doesn't make sense to, you know, 100% if he has been eating the organs, because usually you wouldn't eat the organs of the type of victim that you are cleansing the society, quote-unquote, from. But there are certain similarities here, where, you know, after some time, you start thinking, was there an initial target? Was that somebody that he actually wanted to target, that he would have gotten around to, like his ex-girlfriend? Or was this just him seeing a bigger picture, seeing the whole problem with the society? Him cleansing the society from the rich and cleansing them from the sex workers, cleansing them for people who, because of his opinions about the society, deserved it. Now, the police reports might not get filed when a sex worker disappears. However, the pimps do eventually start noticing, because at this point, we know it was at least 10 victims. So, these local pimps from the Gionwa Bangs started communicating with one another. So, they communicated with each other and realized that the women who received a call from a certain cell phone number didn't return when they went out to visit that client. This phone sex pimp, Mr. A, passed that information to a police officer that he knew. And this police officer told him, well, if this cell phone number appears again, just let me know. But by this point, we know that you is using or attempting to use the cell phones from his victims in order for this not to happen. So, on July the 15th, 2004, he does just that. You switches on one of his victim's cell phones and rings that same pimp. 
and he recognizes that number because the girl used to work there. So he immediately alerts the detective. He pretends like everything is normal on this call, you know, they're gonna arrange and it's gonna be confirmed by text, just as I explained. Then loops the detective in, and the detective says, okay, send us the location that you sent to him via text, alert the girl to pretend like everything is normal. However, now this location that they arranged to meet up, you does show up, and the police is literally like surrounding it, kind of like behind the corners, hiding all of them, trying to inspect, but also not put this girl in danger. But you literally just appears from the distance, sees this girl and texts or calls this pimp back, saying like he doesn't like her, she's too tall for him, you know, he's only 168 centimeters tall, he needs somebody of his height, for fuck's sake. So, the pimp is like, there's no problem, listen, we don't need to postpone this tonight, we're gonna get you another girl. Just as this is set up and the woman's cell rings, he asks her to take another alley on her left and then another one on her right, because he was probably suspicious or thought like, mm, you know, I'm gonna do this on my turf, on my territory to make sure that this isn't some form of holdup. But it was. The girl appeared and after her, four or five police officers. And among these people, it was the pimp that first called the police officers, some of the police officers, the employees of the place, and three other pimps that tackled you in order to handcuff him. We tried to run, he tried to not be caught, which kind of again fits into the profile of that moral enforcer. And it was said that as they tackled him down to handcuff him, the phone sex cards, rather the parts of them, were falling out of his mouth because he tried to chew them, to sort of, I don't know, eliminate the evidence, the fact that he had this many phone call cards on him and that he was the person behind quite literally everything. The police would later say it is true that the massage parlor people called Mr. Yu first, but isn't it also true that we sent our men? Just shut it for a second and let sex workers have their fucking day. Let them take their credit for once in their fucking life. This spree was brought to the end because of the people in the sex work industry, because of the common sense of the people inside of that parlor. Had they not realized that their women have gone missing, how many more victims would we be sitting here speaking about today? At what point would the police have realized on their own? Because this is a completely different MO. Speaking about the police, now, this man is brought into the interrogation room. This is the footage that the documentary starts with, with him being cocky, taking pride into what he has done, taking pride that he was in control of the profiler, that he has the control of all of the information that they still aren't privy to, and also very proud of how the press spoke about him. The police officers, in order to test if he was the person they believed he was, if he had all of this rage built up inside, would kind of just, like, smack him around. You know, it wasn't torture, it wasn't great police interrogation work either, but they would just, like, smack him on the back of his head, and he would immediately get pissed off. 
And he started drawing. So they gave him like a paper and a pen and he was drawing tallies as if like, you know, real fences and then he would cross them over. And he did that over and over again, saying that had he not been caught, there would have been at least 100 victims. Despite of that, he wasn't giving them much. Despite of them smacking him around, building up this rage inside of him, because you had one more trick up his sleeve. As soon as the investigators were inside of that room, at some point he started faking an epileptic seizure. And there are all of these seasoned detectives in this documentary that say they believed it. Like, he collapsed on the floor and was foaming at his mouth. So, you know, they kind of brought him back to, like, his normal state. They realized, like, he's okay. But because of this, they uncuff him so that he is more comfortable. And after this, possibly to report it to anybody, they don't make this clear because they already look bad. But they still do fess up that this was all their mistake. One of the detectives gets out to speak with somebody and he thought he left the other detective behind, right? In the interrogation room with the uncuffed prime suspect for this crime. However, this man also left. So, of course, you who isn't locked in this room, doesn't have the handcuffs on, he's barefoot and he just decides to leg it. He gets out and gets out of that police station. And now, as soon as they go back into that interrogation room, well, they realize that their culprit, their suspect, prime freaking suspect, is gone. We later find out that he actually met up with his mom and sister in order to change clothes, because it was raining that night, he needed shoes as well. And the mom would say that when they met up, he was telling her, I want to die, I want to die. And that she wasn't able to say anything. She didn't want to report her son back to the police because she knew he is soon gonna get caught. During this time, the police believed that he also disposed of most of his weapons, including that sledgehammer. And now, while he is... And now, while he has met up with his mom and sister to change clothes, the police stations assembled all of these hundreds of officers that have already went home. And they said it was like a scene from a movie. Like, the whole night, they're literally just in the rain, in the pitch darkness, looking as far as they thought he could have gone on foot. And they also realized that in order not to look dumb, in order not to look like they have just let their prime suspect go, they have actually gone to the prosecutor to sign the form, the release form, that they said that they have caught him for theft and had released him. They all admit to this during this documentary. They all say, yeah, we were falsifying documents, that we were all stressed, but we believe that we will find him by the next morning. But then, 12 hours later, in the Red District, they spot him on the street. They spot him because he is rubbing an egg against the swelling that was on his eye. Speak about standing out, my man. Like, people like this deserve to get caught. And they have deserved to get caught a lot earlier. A lot more lives could have been prevented in this case. 
They tackle him again, manage to arrest him, and this time around, of course, he was handcuffed, supervised a lot better. And this time around, they send a woman, the police investigator, who was a female, inside in order to spook him, in order to make sure that he knows that there are women looking into this. And then, you know, she's gonna leave and he's gonna be handled by the male investigators. And this worked because he immediately started asking this police officer, what is she doing there? Was she a witness? Why is there a police officer that is a female? And she just, you know, sits there in silence and then leaves the room, and then he's completely spooked, he's freaked out, like, how is there a woman that is investigating something like this? As this worked, and as he is now thoroughly spooked, and probably knows that he has been caught, he won't be able to pull any tricks up his sleeve on this occasion, well, he decides to do what he does best, and draw. But this time, instead of tallies, instead of just not giving them anything, he actually laid out where he buried the bodies. These drawings will bring the police, that will bring him along to Bongwan Temple. This temple dates from before Christ, from 889 AD. It is known as this temple that is situated in the woody valley of An Mountain, and in the weather that Seoul experienced that summer, which was one of the hottest summers on record, the human bodies would have decayed fast. You would be handcuffed, covered with that yellow raincoat and the mask covering everything but his eyes, leading the police to where he buried the bodies of the women that he killed. He would lead them he would lead them to the Bongwan Hamlet, which was just before the temple grounds bordering the quieter, secluded world from the motorways, from the roadways of Seoul. As he was directing the detectives where to dig, they would end up uncovering the plastic bags of body parts in different stages of decomposition. And when the news reporters got a hold of this story and when they swarmed the area, you would look directly into the cameras saying, Women shouldn't be sluts, and the rich should know what they have done. His face was covered because the media was everywhere, and he still had to show them the bodies for him to actually connect him to this crime. Because they had the footprints, and that was pretty much it, if you really think about it. They had the footprints and that clue, that tip-off from the person in the sex work industry. They didn't have much crucial, solid evidence against him. And they, yes, needed a confession, but that confession wouldn't have held up unless they were to actually find the bodies and manage to connect them to it. And because of the laws in South Korea protecting the identity during the criminal investigation until they were found guilty, only his last name would have been released, only his surname would be appearing in the media, and his face was to be covered during this investigation, which I don't have a problem with. I actually quite am pro this. Like, we've seen this in Grace Milan case in New Zealand, because they have followed the same procedure, until the man was found guilty, his name wasn't released to the public, and his face was even, you know, masked on all of the CCTV footage. So, 
I think more countries should implement this in order exactly to do this, to avoid people from being harassed if they are falsely accused, for example. But I'm just stating this because the media was first introduced to this potential suspect, this potential killer who has led them to the burial place when he was in this yellow raincoat, sporting quite a weird and bizarre look, hence the moniker. As he's there, just passively observing them uncovering body after body, at least 10 bodies were uncovered on this burial site, he's also taunting the reporters, saying that he hopes that this teaches women a lesson, and that it teaches reach a lesson as well. There was this woman who said that this case has changed her life, the one that entered the room, that the one that was taunting him as well, and she said, you know, she was lifting each and every woman's hand, but she was lifting fingerprints of each woman, just trying to get something, trying to get, like, parts of the fingers where he didn't scrape the skin below them. And she said that the victims helped her. She felt like she was in trance at that burial site, just asking them to help her send resolutions to their families about who they are, the fact that they have been found, and that their killer is going to go behind bars. Once this was done, they have focused on his flat, and they found the place spotless. That is, until they walked into the bathroom and poured the luminal light all over it. And that scene again haunted these detectives through life. They spotted some blood that was fresh, some that was old, all of the spatters on the ceiling, on the toilet paper holder, inside of the drains. And finally, near his flat, they find a place where he disposed of the hammer. And immediately, that was the final piece that they needed, because as soon as they unscrewed that handle from the top of the hammer, they found all sorts of evidence. The congealed blood that definitely wouldn't have washed off properly whatever he did to that hammer was just contained in those little crevices. The shape of the bruises matches it. They knew that this man isn't going to be let out free at any point during his life. In terms of his confessions, he confessed to 26 murders, but the police would manage to assemble the charges for 21, and that is what will reach the court eventually. He would end up saying that he's sorry for what he had done, but also that he would have kept on killing had he not been caught. At his first trial, he said, The media keeps saying that I've murdered so many people, but to me it was only a mere start. I had no intention of stopping the killing. I did it to kill society. When I came to the bitter realization that money was all that mattered, I thought of myself as enforcing the very punishment myself. It will take the police officers only 10 days to finalize this whole investigation, meaning that on Monday, July the 26th, he is going to be turned over to the prosecutors. And here, outside the prosecutor's office, there were a mess of reporters, journalists, and family members. There was a brother of a family member that was interviewed for the documentary. 
of the burned victim and he said he throwed himself onto the police car. He wanted to kill him himself and people had to restrain him so that he physically doesn't launch himself onto the person that killed his brother. And not just that, but they wanted to kill their child as well. Miss Jeong, who was a mother of one of the victims, said that the police's insincere and incompetent investigation killed her daughter. If you arrested him earlier, my daughter wouldn't have died. During his initial couple of hearings in court, he kind of gave slight hints here and there that he might be considering ending his own life if they weren't to already send him to the death row themselves. In late September, he appeared in court saying that he doesn't want to attend the trial anymore, displaying distrust towards the police, prosecution, and the judges. But the South Korean system doesn't have the jury, so the judges are the ones to decide on everything here. And the three judges told him that he isn't the one to decide whether or not he gets to have a trial or not. You know, you committed a crime, you go to trial. It's just how life works, man. He would pull up different stunts because of his rage. He would sort of launch himself towards the judges, yelling that he isn't going to attend his next hearing. Then later, when he would calm down, he would give interviews to the reporters, saying how he is sorry for victims' families and he is repenting for the murders. But because of these hints, and because suddenly he's saying he's sorry, which they know that he probably doesn't feel himself, they have put him on the 24-hour watch in prison in order to make sure that he doesn't commit suicide. Because of this watch, they have stopped the suicide attempt on October the 3rd, and he tried to pull even further stunts in order not to attend the hearings, just further delaying the justice for these victims. But they made him basically postpone another hearing and they made him appear on October the 25th. Here he would cause major havoc again, threatening the spectators, throwing chairs, and even staring at the families of the victims, saying they were abnormal women. They deserved to be caught. He would only calm down in November, December that year, when he realized that the prosecutors were actually fighting for the death penalty. To which he responded, I'm thankful for the prosecutor's request for the death penalty. I will be repenting what I have done until I die. Now, the last death penalty was actually carried out seven years prior, in 1997. So, it was still there pro forma, but it was more probable that he will be one of the 60 death row inmates, just sitting and waiting for a possible execution date that might never come. So, on December the 13th, he had heard his verdict. The judge read out, with most of the 20 victims being women and the elderly, use case is a serious crime that has no parallel in the nation's history. He was sentenced for 20 out of 21 murder charges against him. We sentenced him to death, having considered his motive, the method of murder, and the shock his killing spree gave to the bereaved families and to the public. Even though he felt sorry for the bereaved families of the victims at the end of the trial. One of the charges would have been dropped and he would have been acquitted for it because they didn't have any other evidence apart from his confession. And of course, the prosecution would appeal on that while his defense would appeal on the death penalty. And on June the next year, the appeal 
for the case that he was acquitted for was rejected, but his death sentence was still confirmed. From all I have read, he is still sitting on the death row because the death penalty in South Korea is kind of on hold. People are trying to change the laws and they have failed in 1991, 2001. So I'm not sure what the situation is right now. You let me know if you want. But yeah, from all I know, he is still alive, sitting on the death row, waiting to be hung possibly one day. Because again... From what I read, that is how death penalty is conducted in South Korea. Of course, just like so many serial killers and scumbags of the earth, he has inspired, he has left some legacy behind and inspired multiple people. There was an online cafe kind of club, just like a website that was a fan club of the coolest murderer, Young Chul. The owner of the club that, of course, was hiding behind the handle said that he hopes that fan club becomes a cool Yu Yang Chul fan club. Please have a good time. The website has eventually been removed, but probably not before it has done damage and, you know, family members, victims, friends seeing something like this, somebody glorifying a serial killer that has killed their friends and family online. There was a movie that was roughly depicting the events of this story from 2008 called The Chaser. And then finally, in 2021, just about a month ago, the Netflix documentary has been released. In order to end this on a good note, there was something really positive that the Netflix documentary ended it on with. And that was that finally the women's rights advocates have fought for having a CODIS-like system in South Korea. This would mean the National DNA Data Bank, where, you know, somebody's DNA would be put onto the system, and if they can be connected to any previous crimes, that would flag up for them, and they would know that they have their perp, which would significantly reduce what we have seen here, which were the sexual offenses and murders towards women and marginalized communities. From what I read, this was established in 2010. You let me know if that is true, if you are South Korean or live there, because I just can't believe that in 2021 something like this doesn't exist. Although, to be honest, now thinking about my own country's criminal system, do I know if codis-like system exists? I don't. So I don't know shit. That is the conclusion when it comes to codis and DNA databases. So let me know. And here is where I hand it over to you when it comes to the motives. The major agreement online is that he targeted the rich because he had beef against them to begin with. He was quite dissatisfied with his life and he thought if only he could kill the rich people that would satisfy him enough because they deserve to suffer because he wasn't born as one of them. He wasn't born wealthy. But then after he was hurt by his wife and then by his new girlfriend, well, he decided to shift that rage because that was a more prevalent anger that he was feeling at the time. And let me know, do you see anything that I have mentioned about him possibly returning to his original target? Do you see his ex-wife or that girlfriend that he dated briefly as such? 
And while questioning that, while watching a documentary like this or any others that is concerning marginalized communities, that is concerning the less dead, the victims that don't end up being reported and hence their killers aren't caught for a really long time, if caught at all, I hope you familiarize yourself with these stories and that you share them with more people, because more people need to know that these cases do happen, more people need to know about the ways that we can spot them and prevent them from happening, like these masseuses have done in this case, after literally spotting a pattern before the police did. Next week, I will be bringing you a different kind of story. We are going to Ohio, to the US, and I'm bringing you the story of Billy Milligan. If you want to watch the Netflix documentary, it is the real-life split, if you wish. The guy claimed that he had about 24 personalities. I'm watching the documentary right now, and then I'm gonna fill those gaps in by the internet research, as you do. So if you want to watch that with me, and then come back here so we discuss it next week, do that, and next week I should be bringing you that big case that I'm reading another book about, and it's... It makes you sit in it. It makes you sit in a completely different type of crime. So, different types of crimes coming up. Make sure you like and subscribe. This, what? English is not my first language. <laughs> they know. They know you're an immigrant. Like, they hear the accent. First five seconds in. Exit this video straight away. I need to start my shift. <laughs> Why do I always do this? <laughs> because this makes me happy and my shifts don't. And then the day has the balance, right? Okay? This happiness, to a certain degree, because, of course, it is graphic crime, etc., etc. Customer service, unhappiness, balance, balance. They get it. They got it the first time. <laughs> Bye, guys. I'm speaking to an empty room. I am. Me cuckoo. A bit cuckoo! A bit cuckoo crazy! Oh, God, Scott. Please.